should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind la cha 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 la ta 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 that's not bad in fact I don't sing any sharper than uh, Robert Coulet I'll tell you bring it up there big <laughs> la ta ta Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Dear victim, uh, dear friends, Happy New Year to you. <laughs> hey, now I'm going to ask a question here. It's a theoretical question, philosophical question, a hypothetical question. Uh... Yeah, there's a big hell hum in here. We're going to, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make a, a resolution for New Year's here that I think is going to be good. We're going to fix the equipment. WR. Of course, we figure that by 1978 or 79, they may do something about it. By then, they'll have automated performers, you know, tap dances that will work on the transistors, FET circuits, and, oh, absolutely, John Gambling will be totally FETized. However, uh, uh, how many of you know what an FET circuit is? But that's neither here nor there. Uh, nevertheless, uh, here it is, New Year's Eve. And uh, I, I uh, among other resolutions that I'm going to make, I'm going to list my resolutions here tonight, if you don't mind. Now, for one thing, I realize very strongly that nobody is listening tonight, and I think that's good. Uh, once a year, it's nice to do this thing in total, absolute privacy. You can say all kinds of fantastic stuff. For one thing... Uh, I am making a resolution to say nothing but good things about all the other people who are on this radio station. That's right. I'm going to say, for example, uh, 1971 is going to see Shepard becoming the most dedicated John Gambling fan in the eastern seaboard region. I'm going to just sit there, and every time he gives the time, I'm going to applaud wildly. I'm going to laugh at Peter Roberts' rotten jokes. And that ain't easy. That is not easy. I think we're going to have to bring discipline back into public life. And part of my discipline is I'm going to absolutely laugh every time uh, Peter Roberts says those bad things. Now, on the other hand, I'm going to become, uh, if I can, I'm going, to, I'm going to be very respectful to Alfred McCann. And, uh, of course, that's easy. Uh, Al engenders respect. There's very few human pipe organs left around, and, and Al is a magnificent example of the genre. And when Al says uh, such things as uh, the good uh, New Jersey egg folk, well, I'll uh, applaud. I'll, I'll buy it. <laughs> Al's the only man I know who says things with a, with a straight face like this. Uh, my good wife, Dora, and I uh, motored to uh, upstate New York. That phrase has not been heard since Henry Ford stopped making wind-driven cars at the end of World War One, <laughs> and uh, and I'm going to learn to appreciate that kind of rococo speech. Now, on the other hand, uh, I'm going to rededicate myself, rededicate myself absolutely to listen with religious fervor to every tall, thin gentleman wearing a pink shirt and gold shoes who was interviewed by Arlene Francis on his new book, just showing that the new passions are just so darling. 
I'm going to do that with absolute dedication. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to quit saying bad things about it. I've, I'm also, uh, I'm going to do away with my theme. That ridiculous theme song has got to be done away with. Now, why? Because it denotes a certain supercilious view of mankind. It certainly does. And I'm thinking of getting something by Edvard Grieg. It's a nice theme. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, something a little more... Uh, How about Vivaldi? A little, you know, da, da, dee, 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 dee. a little uh, Mozart, perhaps. And I'm, uh, I'm also going to straighten up in other ways. Uh, for example, now, you'll notice that uh, I have a tendency to wear, uh, well, uh, according to one of my critics, uh, somewhat bizarre clothing. Well, I'm going to stop that. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm laying in a stock. Uh, in fact, I'm beginning to January 1st. I'm laying in a stock of uh, nice, simple white shirts. I'm going to buy myself a gray suit. I've never owned a gray suit in my life. I'm going to get a gray suit, and I'm going to start getting my hair cut. Very short. I mean, you know, it's going to be very straight. Now, why? Because I think it's time for a new, uh, a whole new approach to things. I, I have another idea, too. Now, you know that I've been going around, I've been doing these programs, you know, being a comic and making people laugh and all that stuff that I do in the colleges and stuff. I'm going to stop that, and I'm going to begin a lecture series on man and his search for identity in the 1970s. Or your identity and you with illustrated slides. Now, I'm going to be very serious about things. I'm going to, and I'm going to... <laughs> and, uh... And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm, I, I, uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. This is going to be a terrible thing. I shouldn't do this. But uh, I, I've got other ideas, too. I'm going to, uh, first of all, I'm going to start giving a serious capsule news commentary on our show every night. I'm going to take a dim view every night. And uh, I'm doing away completely with this terrible habit I have of laughing at things. Have you noticed that I occasionally laugh at things? Now, that's not a gimmick. I don't come on here and chuckle on the air just because it's my style or anything like that. I honestly find many things funny. This will cease. And uh, since this is the last night of 1970, I'm going to uh, do other things. For example, uh, one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to read a George Age story for you right now which says probably more than anything I can imagine being said about the whole promise and premise of New Year's. And I use those two words advisedly because, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a thing that goes in our mind all the time, uh, particularly uh, in the last few years, the last few decades, apparently. People have gotten a fantastically self... Man has gotten very self-conscious. I, I think far more so, and I think this is a product of mass communications and uh, constant uh, essays on humanity, constant uh, documentaries on the uh, on the uh, the sex life of the natives of Pango Pango. Until today, the last day, man is probably the most self-conscious creature that ever has lived, and so for that reason, everything that concerns man is fantastically important. And so that the fact that the, uh, that the moon and the sun and the earth have made uh, another cycle of mutual orbits, <laughs> it's related to man. See, we don't, we don't sit and celebrate the fact that the sun made it again. Uh, we sit and say, <laughs> we made it again, which is, uh, you know, much more important to us. Actually, it was the sun that went around all that stuff, you know, the moon and the, the skies and the universe and all that jazz. 
But the we don't want to get into that. Now, uh, what we do want to get into, though, is the, is the belief that everybody has all the time that the last decade was terrible. This is one of man's most abiding beliefs, that the past was always rotten, unless it was really far away in the past. Now, if you get really back far enough, people begin to say how groovy it was. Like, uh, practically every person says, gee, the Greek uh, civilization was fantastic, must have been great. Well, I imagine some Greek standing around outside of the Parthenon when they're building this thing was raising cane because the government was involved in another boondoggle, you know, and says, what is this? What, what, what are they building this big piece of junk for? What, what, what's that going to do for me? See, you know, what are they doing? They're building the Parthenon, all right? So we believe that the Greeks must have had a great civilization. Why? Because it's a long time ago, that's why. As you get closer to our time, we tend to denounce the time more and more. Now, for example, practically everybody is universal in denouncing Victorian mores. Well, I'd say by the year possibly 3,000, people will talk about the Victorian period with the same reverence and awe that they talk about, <laughs> say, uh, the Greek civilization. I said, why those people had real morality in those days? Look at the great writers that were around in the Victorian period. Dostoevsky, uh, Dickens, all the great period. You know, they'll, they'll start extolling it. Now, it'll take a long time for them to extol our time. I think we're in a trough. Uh, but nevertheless, one of the great myths of mankind is that the immediate past was stinky. Now is even worse. But tomorrow, ah, tomorrow, there over the horizon lies the beautiful world that man has been struggling eternally towards. There lies paradise on earth. Rasmus Rudy Coon. Yes. Look down and the future's going to make it. All the way, yes, sirree. They've been they saying that since 1903, and they said it in 296. They will say it in 3462. They said it in 528 B.C. They said it in the third century of the last dynasty of the Egyptian pharaohs. <laughs> That's right. Now, let me read a little story. This is called The Fable of Successful Tobias and Some of His Happy New Years. Would you like to hear The Fable of Successful Tobias and Some of His Happy New Years? Well, all right. This story was written, in case you're curious, well over 65 years ago. In fact, this story was written in 1897, just before the turn of the century. I want you to listen carefully to see whether things have changed much. The Fable of Successful Tobias and Some of His Happy New Years. Once there was a financial heavyweight, the milestones of whose busy life were strung back across the valley of tribulation into the green fields of childhood. <laughs> a beautiful phrase. Listen to that. Once there was a financial heavyweight, the milestones of whose busy life were strung back across the valley of tribulation into the green fields of childhood. Like most of our aristocrats, he got his start out among the cornrows. His youth was spent very happily, but he did not get on to the fact until years later. He used to work 14 hours per for his board and clothes, and his only dissipation was to take in the Swiss bell ringers once every season. At the close of each year, he was permitted to attend a watch meeting at the Mount Zion Church. The watch meeting is a form of gaiety invented a long time ago by someone who was not, well, was not feeling well at the time. The outfit 
We're supposed to sit for three or four hours on the hard benches, meditating on the all the low-down, ornery things that they had done during the old year. Some of them had to hurry in order to crowd this land of meditation into a brief four hours. Did you know what that is? Did you ever hear about that? That business of, uh, of the watch meeting? You ever seen them do that, where they sit? Best before the turn of the year and sit and meditate on all the evil stuff they did? Well, that was one of the high points of his year. Now and then, a local high guy with throat whiskers would arise and talk for a short time on the subject of death and wonder how many of those present would be taken in by the Grim Reaper during the next year. Just at midnight, the sexton would toll the bell so as to cheer everyone up. And then each of the merrymakers would go home and eat a piece of mince pie and a bellflower apple and retreat to the feathers, feeling a little shame for having stayed up so late. Later on, after Tobias moved into town and began to wear store clothes and stand-up collars and put oil on his hair, he encountered another kind of New Year's Day. The era was that of the open house. All of the women received, and the men went over the entire circuit and traded job-printed cards for something to eat and drink. This made it fine for those who were not ordinarily invited into the best homes. The men roamed about in flocks. Usually they had a hard finish, for it was customary in those good old days of democratic simplicity for every true gentleman to take a drink when it was proffered by the hand of lovely woman. And lovely woman seemed to regard it as her assignment to put all the nice young fellows to the bad. It was customary to mix tea, coffee, sherbet, lemonade, eggnog, artillery punch, fizzerine, and the straight goods until the happy new year looked like a scrambled rainbow and the last caller was totally sassled. Well, old Tobe used to go out every New Year's Day to meet the good lookers and fuss around with them, for those were his salad days. He made it a combination salad and philandered about, about, in fact, with about seven before he took the big risk and bought a house with a mortgage attachment and finally settled down. Then the happy New Year's began to take on an entirely new meaning. He drew a red mark around January 1st, for that was the day when he had to make the books balance and take up some big note that was hanging over him like a fantastic storm cloud. His usual plan for celebrating the happy New Year was to sit in his office figuring out how to trim the payroll and sneak up selling prices and keep out of the sheriff's hands for another 12 months. But the time came when Tobias could take out a pencil on December 31st and compute a net profit big enough to fill a furniture van. To all intents and purposes, he had come to the high ground where now, at last, he could afford to sit down for a while, look around, and enjoy the scenery. He certainly possessed all the accessories of a happy new year. He had a bankroll, got a house on the boulevard, and he had a wife who was slowly but surely worming her way into society. He had a son who was attending a high-priced university and gradually accumulating a fake Oxford accent, while his daughter was at a school which used the French novel as a textbook. So, after all these years of struggling, Tobias knew what it was to have a genuinely happy New Year. For when the children came home for the holiday vacation, the busy Mrs. Tobias gave a big dancing party on New Year's Eve to say nothing of a couple of luncheons and a formal dinner. At these glittering functions, the family did what it could to keep Tobias in the background. For while he was a corker when it came to doing a fountain pen specially with a checkbook, he was a frosted turnip when chucked into a suit costing over $150 and put into a Marie Antoinette apartment with a lot of Chaunceys who had been educated in the East. Poor old Tobias. Well, he celebrated the glad New Year by standing around in doorways looking mournfully at the lightweights who were doing the cotillion, 
each of them having the time of his life. He saw his wife hobnobbing with a human pickerel, whose only excuse for being on earth was that he looked well in evening clothes. Daughter was dancing with a lovely specimen of the night-blooming rounder, and son was passing out cigarettes. No one was paying any attention to the provider. So, Tobias made a quiet retreat to his own room, had a glass of milk sent up, and read the market report, and managed to put in a pleasant evening after all, seeing the old one out and the new one in. You want to hear the fantastic moral of this? Listen carefully to this, friends. Moral. One new year is just about as happy as another. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just thought you might like to hear about the uh, old Tobias. Now, that was written, that was written, uh, well, that was written in 1897. And, uh, and I would venture to say that that describes the life of, uh, of the average man today pretty nearly as well as it ever did. Now, do you notice one interesting thing George A. did, by the way, speaking of uh, the superannuated, this is W.O.R. New York. Uh, well, now, this is a historic moment. It's the last commercial of the year. And I think I'll make it a, you know, kind of really give it the pizzazz. Let's see, if you really want to start the new year right, start saving at your ShopRite supermarket. So this uh, should be one of your resolutions. They have all kinds of fantastic prices, like, for example, uh, Naval oranges, 10 for 59 cents. And these are true navy oranges. You know, they come complete in uniform and all. All ShopRite stores will be closed Friday, January 1, New Year's Day. So shop early. Have a healthy and a happy New Year from ShopRite. Dump, da dump, bump. But uh, uh, did you notice one thing that, that, that Aid pointed out in this very interesting thing? That already at that point, that the father of the family was being rejected. You notice that? And for much the same reason that he's being rejected today. Even in those days, they believed that the son is always better educated than the father. You notice that? And, and that myth persists to this day. That will continue to dog mankind. And incidentally, I, I hope you understand that, uh, that that son that he was talking about, you know, the, the one from the East with the college education and all that, well, let's face it. When was that son born if this story was written in 1897? Well, he had to be born about 1870. <laughs> Which meant that that son was already, I mean, he's been, he's been put down by three generations since. And, uh, and so this is uh, the mythology. And this is one of the great things about literature, you know. Uh, literature, it's hard to escape the fact when you actually read literature, when you really sit down and, and uh, look at some of the things that were written in the past. But uh, things really do change a lot less than people pretend that they do. You know, we're making a big pretense now in, this, in our time, and I think one of the great myths of our time is that we have a generation of supermen living with us. This is a great myth. And, and it's, a, it's a myth largely promulgated, incidentally, by the generation themselves. So... Uh, uh, this this uh, this mythology, which uh, which has constantly pursued that, and, and it goes back it goes back thousands of years. You know, one of the most famous essays on this subject was written by Plato, who wrote very much the same. And this was well before uh, the days of Christ. And and Plato uh, made that he was he was talking about 
uh, you know, the smart guys who were coming up, who didn't, <laughs> and he was complaining at the time. Well, now, this is a, this is a, well, and you know, it's getting increasingly difficult to say things like this because we're becoming increasingly myth conscious. We're becoming, in fact, we don't even recognize them as myths anymore. I'm, I'm telling you, Life magazine accepts it as an absolute fact that, uh, that the generation of today is far superior to any generation which preceded it. And it's rarely ever questioned now. That means that we're setting ourselves up for an unbelievable uh, disappointment. A fantastic period, I, I suspect, in the 70s is going to set in of disillusionment. Now, who's going to be disillusioned? Well, the generation that believes that it's a superb, superior, morally superior generation, which will be in the saddle in the 70s. <laughs> I, I predict tremendous disillusionment. And, and from somewhere in some far-off Valhalla, way off in the, in the, in the far-rolling vastnesses of the, of the ancient Olympian valleys and peaks and rills and fields of the ancient past, there will be countless previous generations quietly laughing an enormous cosmic horse laugh. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying tonight on this New Year's Eve, I'm sure, is not going to go down with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of love-beaded crowds who may be listening. But it is a, it, I'm, I'm afraid that history... Uh, has recorded this same phenomenon over and over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, uh, the most recent generation that thought of itself as a superb, superior generation was the famous generation of which my father was a member, the so-called lost generation of the 20s, who felt that they, they were on to the new morality. You know, they were on to... There was a word that, that was used in the 20s, if you read any of the literature of the period. It was called the new morality. And... Uh, the new morality, the new liberalism, and uh, dozens of different names were used. And this is the generation that is almost universally now today <laughs> being put down as total fatheads. And, uh, you know, it's just, just not the fact that they are. So, so the only thing you can derive out of this story, reading this story by uh, George Ade, is the total and infinite truth of what he says. Now, a lot of people are going to misunderstand me. They're going to think that what Shepard is saying here is that he is against idealism. No, not at all. I do not think anybody who believes that he's superior is an idealist. I refuse to accept the premise that any generation, for example, that believes that it's superior to other generations is an idealist. I think it's just egotistical. Uh, egotism really doesn't have much to do with, uh, with morality uh, or goodness or worth. In fact, it's quite often the opposite. And so uh, we, have, we have a tremendous... Uh, we're gonna, I think we're laying, and have been for the past ten years, certainly the last five, we've been laying the groundwork for a fantastic egg. <laughs> oh, really? And it comes as a terrible shock. Like the other day, I was with a group of kids who were about that. We call it... Now, oh, incidentally, I, I say that by 1970, or rather, 1979, by 1979... Anybody who is under 65 will be referred to as one of the kids. Have you noticed that the, that the term kid has increased, has, has slowly crept up until today? It includes anybody who, uh, say, can enroll at a night school someplace. He's then called a student and a kid. And uh, this, this will... Con yeah, oh, yes, and that gives him a certain special aura about him. 
So I suspect that by 1979, I think you're going to see some kids being wheeled around and, uh, you know. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yes, we, we already have them on the scene already. Some of those famous kids like uh, Tim- Timothy Leary, one of the kids, you know. Uh, Paul Goodman, he's been a kid for oh, maybe 120 years. And uh, Paul Krasner, Krasner's been a kid for at least the last 40 years or better. And so this uh, this will uh, this will increase. In the, these are my prediction. I, I say this will increase in the seventies until finally today, uh, Dorian Gray would be right in style. As a matter of fact, uh, Dorian Gray, uh, which uh, I think was a great classic of its time, should be revived in our time. <laughs> you remember what Dorian Gray was about? All right, and I know plenty of Dorian Gray's friends. However. Uh, that's neither here nor there. But the fact that, uh, that by 1979, I think, you're going to see a lot of the trends. You know, after all, a prognosticator, after all, you know, a person who predicts the future, uh, only can do it by ref- referring to the past. You can only do this by referring to developments that you see slowly emerging like an iceberg out of the great Arctic Sea of light. And, and you, can, you can then deduce the shape of the future as it's to come. After all, this is all that, uh, that George Orwell did. And George Orwell wrote a book uh, back in the, in the very early 1940s called 1984. And, uh, and he, he, uh, he, he saw the shape of a, of, a, of a society to come. And how did he do it? Well, he saw it by looking around at him and, and seeing what was going on at the time. And he, he just carried that to its logical extreme. In fact, I, I met a girl the other day who had just returned from a year in uh, studying in Russia. And she says she was astounded. She says it was exactly, ex- almost to the, to the last iota of the last smidgen of, uh, of a detail. She says it was almost exactly like 1984. She was very scary. She had slogans all over the place. And she says the radio would come on every morning at 6 o'clock. And it had, uh, you could only turn it, there was only two ways you could turn it, louder, louder. There was no way to turn it off, and she said that it was fascinating. Well, now, Orwell saw that back in the 1940s, long before people were talking about this. We have elements of it in our society, too, of course. There's no question about it. It's in, it's in all technical societies. And then, on the other hand, there's another man who was looking at the future, a totally different kind of man than Orwell was, a sort of uh, foppish, hedonistic character himself, uh, Almost the, completely the opposite of Orwell in, in his makeup. He was a man of, uh, of uh, patrician background, a scholarly background, whereas or- Orwell's background was really proletarian. Uh, Aldous Huxley, in some ways, uh, the two men complement each other, and at, this, at the other hand, they, uh, they, they represent two poles of thought, uh, looking at the two of them. And he wrote a book in the early 1930s called The Brave New World. Now, he foretold, really more accurately, our world. I think Orwell foretold more accurately the world of the uh, materialistic uh, communist, uh, the world of the, the communal group world, the, the world of, uh, of uh, the socialism, really, what we call communal socialism. Today. In other words, he, was, he, he really foretold the world of Russia, whereas Huxley foretold the world of America. And so, in his world, everybody's on Soma. In his world, everybody's going to unbelievably sexy movies. <laughs> yeah, and he wrote this in 1932. His movies... I'll ask your question now. We'll give you a literary question. What was, uh, 
what, was, what did he call his movies? That by that time, movies were completely out, the term movies. And you notice they're already going out now. You don't used to hear the term movies much. Uh, we've gone through a phase of cinema. And I'd say that by 1975, if the trend continues, we will actually have feelies. We will. His terms were feelies. As you know, uh, probably the greatest, most interesting development, and I'm, again, I'm taking no sides here, I'm just merely relating it, of the past eight or nine years, the past decade, was the emergence of total sexuality in movies and in uh, entertainment. I mean, uh, to the ex in fact, almost to the exclusion of any other value. That, uh, so you see Old Calcutta, which is purely sexual, purely. Uh, many, many movies have a very thin social excuse for being. For example, I Am Curious Yellow has a very uh, patently false and phony uh, reason, uh, raison d'etre. In other words, it's a, a little thin plot, but actually what it's about is sexuality, and that's why people go to see it. Well, by the 1970s, that will disappear by the mid-70s. That is, the thin reason for sex movies, and they will become pure sex movies. In other words, nobody will ever pretend any longer that art is involved. You see, the idea that art uh, is involved in sex is a holdover from the old days when people were embarrassed about sex. And so we still continue to pretend, you know, that uh, we have to somehow run art into it when you're really looking at a giant stag movie. Well... Uh, by the 19 mid-70s, that will disappear, and there will be movies that will be just explicitly, totally, and completely, and thoroughly, and admittedly about sex. That's it. Now, this will prove to be unsatisfactory. Why? Well, because sex really is not a spectator sport. That's really why. <laughs> and ultimately, uh, people will tire of that, and then they will go to the next technological movement which will be to experience sex while you're in the movie house or the house of entertainment to enjoy it. In other words, when you're there, instead of just sitting and watching, as you notice, there are already little overt examples of it beginning to pop out in the live theater where uh, the actress who is naked will come rushing off the stage and come and sit on some spectator's lap. Uh, you, you know, this is the beginning of it, see. Now, that's the way it's done in live theater, you see. And live theater, by the way, is rapidly disappearing, and I think by the late 1970s will almost be completely gone. However, uh, the, the idea of sex as a uh, spectator involvement thing in group theater terms will be very, very important by the mid-'70s and will be accomplished possibly electronically. I suspect there are guys already at work on things... And if you remember, do you know what, what the Huxley, you know how Huxley described them? Uh, Huxley described them uh, thusly. Everybody came to this place, and they sat in this big amphitheater-like. And they looked down on, uh, on what looked like almost an arena, you see. And down in the arena, uh, it was projected in the round, was this uh, fantastic scene. This particular one that he described was a scene of this giant gorilla. <laughs> there was a gorilla involved. And uh, he was having this fantastic sexual scene with this beautiful girl. Well, what, what they did, then, you would come into the feeling and you would grab these handles. And this, uh, by, by an electronic technical technique, uh, this, these handles would give you, by, by using the nerve endings in your hands and so forth, would give you the exact sexual sensations that 
the the uh, participants in this this thing that you were looking at were experiencing. In other words, you were experiencing the very thing that these uh, these creatures were uh, acting out as a charade in front of you. That was the feeling. Now you do see how that could conceivably be the next development, don't you? And it will be hailed. Clive Barnes will flip. Uh, <laughs> Rex Reed will think it's just the most delicious thing that's happened. And uh, this is going to be the next big move. Now, of course, uh, what what we're really doing is, in a, in a very real sense, and this is really the point that Aldous Huxley was making, we are destined to relive history. And uh, what history we are reliving will be the history that uh, that the Romans relived. That, the, that towards the end of the final plunge of the Roman Empire into the abyss of history, uh, the, the biggest thing that, that was uh, a social event in Rome was, of course, the orgy. And the orgy was, uh, was, highly, it was very highly developed in the Roman days. It was not just everybody sitting around, uh, you know, ad-libbing the way it is today. Uh, the orgy, in, in Roman terms, was a very highly developed art form. And uh, it was. It really was. And there are many uh, existing uh, uh, writings on the subject that, that describe how a really well-run orgy is well-run, you see. But, of course, there are a lot of things that were available to the Romans that are not available to us, like uh, tigers, lepers, lions, Nubian slave girls, a lot of stuff, see. So we have to, we have to fake it. So uh, ultimately, in our time, it will be faked by the uh, concepts, I believe, that, that uh, Huxley promoted. And you know, for a long time, people thought Huxley was wrong and Orwell was right. And conversely, for a long time, people thought that Huxley was wrong and Orwell was right. I am submitting to you they were both right, but they were both right in very different areas of human experience. <laughs> I hope you don't mind this uh, this uh, type of boring show on a New Year's Eve here. And by the way, if you think they're going to cure the cold in the next decade, forget it. Forget it. Here's a note from Geneva that just came in. In fact, this is a result of a, of a, of a giant study that was just released, uh, the, the, well, it was released the week before Christmas. Dr. A.J. Tyrell, head of Britain's Common Cold Research Unit, a high-level scientific investigative body, now has made a statement. Did you hear it? There is, and he believes there will never be, a cure for the cold. <laughs> All right, you say boo, boo, boo. You know why you say that? Because man, another one of the constant myths that man has always had is that there is a correction for everything. This has, has, has caused more disillusionment and unhappiness throughout. Yes, people really believe there's a cure for war. <laughs> they really believe this. And they will continue to believe this. Listen, I want to tell you, in the next decade, there will be wars that even now yeah, would seem ridiculous for me to predict. That, uh, that, that ten years from now, you will look back and say, who would have thought that X would have done that to Y? Now, back in 1960, when I first was on the air, I remember in 1960, I predicted violence in the White House. I predicted ten years ago on this same radio station, on this same microphone, I predicted, and this was before Kennedy was even in office, I predicted violence in the White House. Do you recall that? I wonder how many of you know that. And, and, and I've got it on tape, by the way, in case you're curious. We ought to be playing some of those. But that is a fact, because I was predicting it on the premise of the developments of the 50s, where people were becoming more and more 
self-righteous in the late 50s, more and more totally convinced that the, the, the democratic process didn't work. That started, you know, in the late 50s. And it led inevitably to assassinations of political leaders, which is, in a sense, the rule of the mob vis-a-vis the ballot box. Now, uh, I predict that by 19... I will predict, and I'm going to make some specific predictions. Are you curious? I will predict that by 10 years from now, in fact, it'll, be, it'll come in a very much shorter time, really, that the two-party system that we know today will be a thing practically of the past. That by the 19... Are you are curious about this, what I feel? That by the 19... Late 70s, a third party will emerge, and it will really be a party of the beautiful people. I'm predicting the party, uh, an emergence of a party which really feels that it is a superior type of person. And it will really be composed of the beautiful people. Uh, they will consider themselves beautiful. And uh, their morality is higher. In other words, there will be a rise of a party which, which is based really roughly on the premise of aristocracy of attitude. You see a little bits of it that are beginning to break out in the 60s, in the late 60s. We could see some elements of it beginning to show already. Uh, and you will find that uh, I believe that this party will have real power by 1975, roughly. And I don't know what it will be called. It may be called the neoliberal party. It may be called uh, uh, the morality party. That, uh, that could very well be it. It could be something of that nature, uh, the right-thinking party, the, uh, the good guys party. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I predict that this party will, will have real power by the mid-70s. And, uh, and that uh, it will begin to... Of course, it will be based, really, based on, a, on, a, on an old myth which uh, many European cultures have found wanting, and that is the myth of superiority. Uh, it will not be racial superiority, although it will have some overtones of that. It will really be, uh, I am more moral than thee. Uh, in short, I am superior... Uh, in, to the insensitivity, it's going to be sensitivity, and it, and it will be largely a party, by the way, that will be based on one of the one of the great emergent themes of the 1960s, age. That uh, I suspect that that uh, that the party will not allow anybody roughly over 40, unless it's one of the beautiful leaders, to be involved. <laughs> So, so that's, you know, and, uh, and I, it's going to be a fascinating period of history. In fact, I think that, that uh, this, this uh, particular essay, decade that we've just passed in had to be a very exciting, it was an exciting decade. The next one, I suspect, could very well be a hangover from that. In other words, I think that it's not going to be necessarily as exciting. It could very well, the final reaping of it will happen. Uh, just like uh, most Germans will tell you that the exciting decade in, in Germany was the 20s, when all this ferment of art and everything else was exploding all over the place. And uh, in the late, in the 30s is when they began to reap the harvest of it. <laughs> and they began to stoke up the furnaces and one thing or another. But uh, it's going to be a fascinating decade, I suspect. And I have to agree with George Ade and his morality, too, uh, his moral, ultimately. One New Year is just about as happy as another. Now, when you talk about happy, he's talking about the personal feeling of, of a man as uh, we go from one decade into another. Although there is always a myth, you see. That, uh, again, this is a, uh, a two-headed myth. It's hydra-headed, really. It's a, it's a myth that keeps biting at you from both sides. One, that things aren't as good as they used to be. Uh, two, things are groovier than they used to be. And uh, we keep vacillating constantly between that because, you see, again, uh, Huxley wrote an interesting essay on that problem, too. 
He said that each man's personal life is constantly at war with the life of the species. In other words, mankind's lot may be improving, but your lot is declining. Because, first of all, your knee isn't as good as it was five years ago. <laughs> so, there's a, so there's a continual, there's a continual almost a self-perpetuating uh, built-in contradiction. I remember my grandmother, for example, sitting around in the kitchen when I was a kid, New Year's Eve. We always spent New Year's Eve because my mother and father would always go, go to parties on New Year's Eve, the big deal. See, they'd get all dressed up and go to a party. And uh, my grandmother, for some reason which I still do not even understand, I don't know whether anybody else had this, uh, this uh, particular uh, uh, tradition. I don't know whether it was her tradition or what. But every New Year's Eve, all of us kids used to sit around and watch the New Year's come in. You know, it was, it was a big moment when the clock would strike 12 and on the radio they'd have Guy Lombardo. Guy Lombardo was on the radio all the time, you know. And uh, they'd say, and now from the hotel, what was it, the Roosevelt? Now from the Hotel Roosevelt, hear the sounds of Times Square and Guy Lombardo are welcoming in the new year. And you'd hear Ben Grower saying, Happy New Year, everybody, and I'm overlooking Times Square, and there are a million people down there celebrating the advent of the new year. And all of us would sit in the living room there, say, and my grandmother at that point would pass around a plate of pickled herring. She had this idea that if you ate pickled herring on New Year's Eve exactly at midnight, you'd have good luck all year. It didn't help my Uncle Carl, who was out of work for the entire... <laughs> all the years I knew him. And he'd eat herring until it came out of his ears. And so that, that, that dramatic moment when Ben Grower would say, and there's the ball now, it's going up, and it is now exactly midnight, and the new year has come in. Let all the quantons be forgot. So all I can say is have a groovy 1970s decade, man. And uh, hang loose. It's about all the individual can do. Hang loose.